We're in Acts 14 this morning. I'll dive in head first here. Verse 1. The same thing occurred in Iconium, where Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. They spoke, that's interesting, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. We'll spend a lot of time on that this morning. That um, They spoke boldly for the Lord, and then he, the Lord, testified to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. But the residents of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, the apostles learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued proclaiming the good news. We're going to keep going here. Verse 8. In Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Notice that. Paul looked at this lame man, and something about the look the lame man was giving Paul let Paul know this man has the faith to be healed. So Paul said in a loud voice, Paul's looking intently at him. He sees that he has faith to be healed, and he looks he's, in a loud voice. He says, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. It's probably not pronounced that way. Because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, this is interesting now, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, he started rounding up oxen and garlands at the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they thought they were gods. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways. Yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, Paul and Barnabas scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Ryan preached a couple weeks ago. Do y'all remember how the sermon ended? A fella was consumed with or by worms. Do y'all remember why? He took credit for what God was doing. Paul and Barnabas, quick learners. They're calling us gods. If we don't do something quickly... There may be some hungry worms around. A little background here. Um, the legend had it in, in Lystra, in this area, that Zeus and Hermes had visited before. So that the gods had come down to be among the people before. And that nobody in the town recognized them except an elderly couple. And somehow the elderly couple was then deified because of their ability to recognize Zeus and Hermes. Um, what I want to talk about today is not as much contextual historical stuff from the scripture as much as 
this phenomenon that we fall victim to so often where we like to deify people and on the flip side where we like to be worshipped as God ourselves. Can you imagine, Paul and Barnabas would have had control basically to do whatever they wanted to do. They could have said, yeah, we are Zeus and Hermes, and Jesus is the Christ. Wouldn't that have worked? Like, you could have took this energy that they were giving you, they're, they're identifying you as the God that they're worshiping. Yeah, that's who we are, except, so they had all this power, all this control. Instead of doing that, though, Paul and Barnabas rush into the town. They tear their clothes and yell out, Hey, we are mortals. Now, have you ever, we'll start sort of in what's easy, sort of the low-hanging fruit. Have you ever seen someone who God worked through that then took credit for God's work as if it was something they possessed? Anybody? If you have ever been around Pentecostal charismatic churches, yes, you have seen this. Um, Because in my experience, we'd have folks come in who would almost be shrouded in this, like, aura, like they were somehow anointed with something that nobody else had access to. The man of God. Y'all know the man of God. There ain't none of those, by the way. Uh, not singular, that is. But you'd have these folks who are shrouded in all this mystery. I, I was a part of a, a church one time where we would bring in these folks who had these high-ranking spiritual powers, and nobody could touch them until it was time for them to release their magic. This big church. Bigger than this. So that's low-hanging fruit, right? Those are easy to pick out. But have we ever been the people who God works through, and rather than being something that reflected back onto God, we said, you know, you're right. I am Zeus. Maybe you're having a hard time understanding what I'm saying, so I want to break it down pretty um, surgically this morning. Willie Jennings, who I pull from a lot, a theologian, said, This is always the first work of clarification, the separating of the messengers of God from the presence of God. The church born of Gentiles always needs this clarification. We too often confuse our presence with the presence of God. Will Willimon, who's a pastor up in North Carolina, said the gospel is not simply about power, but about the power of Christ. Power, even power for good, is liable to misinterpretation and misunderstanding. Both believers and non-believers may mistake the gospel for magic or divine omnipotence. So here's the paradox we're going to talk about this morning. God wants to work through us, but he wants to work through us so that we can reflect back onto him his majesty. At the same time, I always do these little dichotomies. I'm catching myself do these all the time. Um, At the same time, if I get up here and sing you a song, what song do y'all want to hear? Just for Let's do it right here. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll. And at the end of the song, will somebody say, Cody, you did a good job. I fly away in the morning when I die. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Thank you. It wasn't me, though. It wasn't me. It was God. It wasn't God. I just sang that song. (laughs) All right? So there's this paradox, right? If I sing the song, there's sort of this false humility that says, well, no, it was God. It wasn't that good. All right? And then there's this paradox over here that will say, it was all, all the stuff you saw, it was good. Yeah, that was me. 
So what Paul and Barnabas are displaying is one of the most beautiful pictures of how we possess the same power that raised Jesus. Let me rephrase. How we are possessed by the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. But how we don't get to take credit for the work of that power when it flows through our hands. So that's what I want us to see. I want us to see how we can be these people who are filled with God and who also know how to give God credit for his work. How to be conduits of God. There's a poem that goes like this. God, like water, can only be held with hands open. God, like water, can only be held with hands open. What happens if you hold water with closed hands? You don't get no more water, right? This is the way of the flow of the Spirit, that as soon as we have harnessed God, as soon as we can control God, as soon as we can predict God, as soon as we can market God, we've lost God. So let's take a journey. This is going to be called the journey of soil. Mark McMinn wrote an article back in, I think it was 2017, called The Science of Humility. And in it, he was trying to prove that there is now, um, I, what, I forget what they call it, positive psychology. Positive psychology has now proven that things like humility and forgiveness are actually beneficial to your physical health. Who'd have thought that God commanded us to do something that was good for us? Um, but what he found out was this. I won't ask you the question because I don't want this to be an I gotcha. It turns out, though, that 93% of people in the United States believe they are above average drivers. Do y'all see how that statement cannot be true? Because as Mark McMahon said, a conclusion, if true, that would defy the very notion of what the word average means. What he was getting at is, we think we are good at most things, right? But what he found was humble people, people who have the virtue of humility, are a people who have a reasonably accurate view of themselves. They are not self-deprecating, and they are not arrogant. The second thing he found out was that people who are humble pay attention to other people. This is a direct quote from Mark. He said, Humility calls us to put the mirror down and look around. Humility calls us to put the mirror down and look around. This is what we talked about last week. Our deliverance is in moving away from ourselves for the sake of the other. Now, there is a direct correlation I need us to see this morning that the word humility comes from the Latin word hummus, H-U-M-U-S, which is the word for soil. The reason it would come from soil is because that is our composition. We, humans, are dirt and breath. Our physical components are soil. Our beautiful components are breath. Um, so when God creates Adam... He takes the dirt, breathes into it, and out of that comes the human. Who we are and our perfect state is this balance of limitlessness with God and finitude without God. Ultimate dependence on God that then produces extravagance and abundance, okay? So there's this really powerful thing that happens when we can finally get to the place where we understand, okay, I used this in the wedding yesterday, that Adam was lonely in the beginning because Adam was perfect, not because Adam was sinful. I sent that, I sent that to you, Ron, this week in a text. Adam was perfect because, he was lonely because he was perfect. 
Because God has designed us in our perfection to need each other and God. So in our dependence and in our finitude, we actually find our healthy, original, divine design. When we start living a life that believes we are independent, when we start living a life that thinks we are limitless without God, when we start living a life that starts tapping into some sort of power that is not reliant on God for its, as its source, we start living contrary to our design, and this is when we start going against the grain of the universe. Have you ever gone against the grain of a piece of, of a board? It's not nearly as good for you as going along with the grain. So when we start living against the grain, we start living as a people who believe that we are independent, infinite, without the need for help. Okay? Paul and Barnabas are trying to show us here, they just literally, Paul just identified with a supernatural power, looks at this man who has been lame from birth, sees in him, this is a powerful thing just in itself, he sees in his eyes that the man has the faith to be healed. Paul looks intently at him and says, stand up and walk, and the man who had been lame from birth is healed. And Paul is able to take this power and immediately take a whole people and point them to God. We haven't been good at this. We have not been good at saying, yes, the most creative, beautiful, cosmic force has just passed through my body, and it wasn't me that did it. Stop, telling, stop worshiping me. I'm tearing my clothes because I don't want you to think it was me. Most of the time we want it. Because we have piles of insecurity, right? We have piles of deficits, piles of recognition that didn't come to us. And so if we can take advantage of God for the sake of our own security, for the most time, most part, we do. Unfortunately, that too is detrimental to our triune health. When I say triune, I mean physical, spiritual, mental health. Thomas Merton said this. He said, faith and humility are inseparable. If you lack faith, more than likely you lack humility. Faith and humility are inseparable because what is faith? If I have faith in Dale... What does that mean for me? What does it say about my character if I have faith in, in Dale? Not much, right? It says the most about who? The one who is trustworthy. Faith and humility are inseparable. So if I'm living a life that is trusting, it's because I'm living a life that realizes I have needs. It's because I'm living a life that is vulnerable. It's because I'm living a life that is willing to communicate and risk saying, I need help. So notice how they're almost so concentric, they can look like the same exact expression. Thomas Merton said something that was maybe the most beautiful picture of what I'm trying to explain. So if what I have been trying to explain has made no, no, no sense, uh, this is a Thomas Merton quote that I think will, will get us. He said, the humble person receives praise the way a clean window takes the light of the sun. The truer and more intense the light is, the less you see of the glass. I'm going to say it again. The humble person receives praise the way a clean window takes the light of the sun. The truer and more intense the light is, the less you see of the glass. Jesus told us, he said, you will be the light of the world. Other than a couple weeks ago when that light over there was flickering, how many of y'all have paid attention to the lights since you've been here this morning? We're not doing a lot of looking up at the, look at there. We're not doing a lot of that, right? It hurts for these lights in particular. I just realized that. Uh, Dale's only got one light. You don't want to risk that one eye, right? We're not paying attention to them. But because they are here, we can see. 
And so when God tells us we are the light of the world, the hope is that we don't become the thing that is the attraction. But that we actually become the thing that illuminates what people should be seeing. This doesn't mean that we have to be self-deprecating. This doesn't mean that when I sing the song and you say, good job, that I have to say, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. Don't mean that, right? Because a proper embodiment of worship would be someone who was humble enough to say, thank you. Because thank you tells the other person that their recognition is a part of your well-being. I needed you to say that. And that's okay. Because what does thank you mean? We talk about this, we've been talking about this for several weeks now. What does thank you mean? It means the fact that I'm experiencing joy is embodied in the words thank you that express to the person who is around me that my happiness is contingent upon their presence, words, gifts, etc. So in that moment, one of the most worshipful things you could do is say, thank you. Or, praise God. That was beautiful today. Thank you. Praise God. Or tear your clothes. We're not going to eliminate that option. Here comes a long quote. Another Thomas Merton quote. He said, at this point of the spiritual life, humility meets the highest exaltation of greatness. It is here that everyone who humbles himself is exalted because living no longer for himself or on the human level, the spirit is delivered of all the limitations and vicissitudes of creaturehood and of contingency and swims in the attributes of God whose power, magnificence, greatness, and eternity have through love, through humility, become our own. I'll summarize what he said there. He says, basically, we are fully alive when we are dependent on God, dependent on one another, finite creatures. But what Merton talked about is how when we actually step into this reality, we step into the power that is limitless. I need us to get that. Biggest point of the day. When we can finally realize, God, I can't do this without you. There's nothing we cannot do. God, I can't do this without you. Literally, the word confidence that should be the, the direct opposite of the word arrogance is rooted in the word to confide. If I were to confide in Rusty right now, what would that mean? I would trust him. Literally, that's where we get the word confidence. Confidence is where that comes from. So if we were walking around as a confident people, it was not because we realized we were self-sustained, self-made, independent, infinite creatures. It would be because we realized we are held up by a God who is for us and by a body that will esteem us as greater than itself. This is supposed to be the story of the church. Humility is the embodied posture of worship overflowing with joy. If you want to live a life that is in constant worship, be someone who's humble. For a humble person is not afraid of failure. In fact, a humble person is not afraid of anything. Not afraid of himself. Because perfect humility implies perfect confidence in the power of God before whom no other power has any meaning and for whom there is no such thing as an obstacle. Paul and Barnabas realized God is with us. And because he is with us, I can look and see that is the gift of the Spirit. That means that's not my gift. The nature of a gift, I have gifts here this morning. The nature of a gift is that it is not a gift until you receive it. 
That means it is not mine. It is yours. Who is the gift of healing for? The sick person. Not for the identity of the one who is the conduit of the gift. Y'all with me? Who is the gift of wisdom for? The person who is asking a question. Not for you to walk around acting like you are the harnesser of all wisdom. What they realized is that when we can be at this place where God, like water, is contained with our hands wide open, then we can be, like Merton talked about, a people who have a glass that is absolutely clean so that the light can penetrate, so that when people come into the house they say, man, it is beautiful in here. May we be a people who are okay with asking for help. May we be a people who are okay with the power of resurrection flowing through our hands. May we be a people who are okay with saying, I can't do it. May we be a people who are okay with possessing for a moment the wisdom of God. Do y'all see how these things are just so crazy? May we be a people who realize that God has not left us out on an island by ourselves, but that we are created as a people who are dependent so that we can be a people who worship. May we be a people who worship and who embody worship with humility.